the kids have not already been dismissed. Seth, go find your sister and uh, make sure she finds the children's area. So just so we have some transparency, where's where's Kyle? Has he disappeared? Becca, Doug, Mark. No, I know. I'm looking at them. I just saw him. Okay, well, Kyle, who is in the bathroom, we'll just assume that. Uh, Kyle, who is in the bathroom, uh, we are candidating him for a potential worship leader uh, to be the regular uh, worship guy who shows up every Sunday. And I talked to them. I said, you know, seven out of eight Sundays, we want you here. We want you to be a part of the church. We want you to be integrated into our church. We want you to be leading worship, organizing it, making sure everything is going well, that you know, band members are improving, that the service is, is uh, moving in a direction that helps us glorify God and worship him. So if you have feedback on it, if you think his singing helped you draw closer to God, great. That's what we want. Uh, we've looked through quite a few people, and we think he's very good. We think he's our leading candidate. So if you have feedback on him, please talk to me or to Mark. We will gladly listen to what you have to say. If you liked him, great. If you didn't like him, please come and explain why. <laughs> uh, but we like him, and we would like to know what you think about him. Don't shout it out right now, even though he's in the bathroom. Uh, candidating people, always fun. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're in Luke chapter 1. And uh, Danny, just so you know, you're starting to play a fun game that everyone plays as they get older called, Why Is This Minor Injury Taking So Much Longer to Get Better? I don't like this game. I, uh, like a month ago, I stepped on my foot wrong. And it hurt, like, the sole of my foot. And it's just taking forever to get better. And it's like, when I was 16, it had been better the next day. I'd have been running, no problem. And now it's like, ooh, don't want to do that. Not fun. Uh, But we are in Luke 1, and today is the second Sunday of Advent, and we're moving through uh, the stories in Luke 1, uh, dealing with right before Jesus' birth. Uh, Last week was Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist, his uh, upcoming conception and then birth. And this week, we see Gabriel visiting Mary. And the amount of angelic activity surrounding the birth of Jesus always baffles me. Because if you look in the book of Luke... You see angels showing up three times with Jesus' birth. We see it with the announcement about John the Baptist. We see it with the announcement of Jesus this week. And then we see the announcement of, uh, to the shepherds when Jesus, the night Jesus was actually born. And if you look in Matthew, you see even more angels at work. Uh, specifically with Joseph, Jesus' adopted dad. Uh, there are three instances of angelic announcement to Joseph. Uh, first, when Joseph is about to break off the engagement because Mary's pregnant. Uh, Second, when Herod starts looking to go kill Jesus, angels come and appear to Joseph in a dream again. And then third, when they're down in Egypt and Herod dies, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, hey, time to go back now. And all this angelic activity sounds amazing, especially since it surrounds Jesus' birth. And as I mentioned last week, um, I have one story about angels to tell. And it's like Joseph, it happened while I was asleep. 
back in 2011, back in my first year of marriage, uh, we lost our first child at around two months, eight, eight weeks or so. Uh, it was terrible. We actually found out the day after our first anniversary. We went into the doctor. We were all excited. We're like, yeah, the baby's getting bigger. And we went in, and they're like, there's no heartbeat. And we went, sucks. <laughs> and it took a lot out of our marriage and made life unpleasant for, for a while. Um, it just was pretty terrible. Uh, but around the new year of 2012, uh, we talked about it, and we said, all right, we'll try again. We had about four months uh, to heal from losing the first baby. We felt pretty good, felt pretty comfortable. So in January, we started trying for baby number two. And February 23rd, I wrote the date down. had a dream. So in this dream, I was laying in my bed. And in my dream, I was laying in my bed, which was convenient. Um, but I remember in my dream, I saw... I don't remember. The first part was like I was playing Mario Kart with my wife or something. But anyway, the... Then it switched, and I was laying in my bed, and as I was laying in my bed, I looked over to my left, and there was a bright person standing next to my bed. And he leaned over, and he said, wake up, Sarah's pregnant. And so I shot up, and woke up, and I sat up in bed, and I was like, man, that was, and I was like, that was a weird dream. Looked over at the clock, four zero zero, four o'clock in the morning on the nose. And I thought, huh, okay. Went back to sleep. So I went back to sleep again. And again, I had the same dream. Somebody bright standing beside... It's the exact same dream. Somebody bright standing beside my bed saying, wake up, Sarah's pregnant. I woke up again. And I was like... I sat up and I'm like, this is weird. Looked at the clock. It was 5 o'clock on the nose, five zero zero, And I'm just like, this is really weird, man. What's going on? So I went back to sleep because I'm super perceptive like that. <laughs> I went back to sleep again... Again, I have the same dream, exactly the same. Somebody bright standing beside my bed saying, wake up, Sarah's pregnant. And this time, I didn't wake myself up. Instead, Sarah was shaking me and woke me up and said, wake up, I just took a test and I'm pregnant. And I looked at the clock and it was 6.15 and I was like, okay, cool. And I, I, was, I was happy, I was excited. She apparently was sick with something and wanted to take something to help her feel better. But she was like, well, before I take this medication, I better take a pregnancy test just to make sure I can take this. So it turns out she couldn't take whatever medicine she wanted to take because she was pregnant with Seth. And let me tell you, um, this encouraged me the entire time. I, I never wake up at 6.15. I try to wake up as late as possible. Every, I'm not an early bird. I'm a night owl through and through. Uh, my children, on the other hand... They wake up at 4.30 in the morning and are like, go back to sleep. <laughs> but I, even though I woke up at 6.15, I think we called my parents right away. We're like, hey, guess what? We're pregnant. And this, this dream, these, these three dreams in a row, encouraged me the entire time I was, Sarah, I was pregnant. <laughs> Sarah was pregnant with Seth. Because after you lose the first one, and you know what it's like to have the potential of having a newborn baby. You have a child that is growing and developing, and then that child basically dies. It's just nothing. It stops forming. The body says, no, this isn't going to work. Shuts it down. And you deal with grieving. It's, it's weird because you grieve not for the child you had, but for the child you might have had. You think of all the things that might have happened, and you say, well, I don't get those now. And when it's your first one, it's really difficult. 
Because you then are, you're going, well, was this going to happen again? And so when Sarah got pregnant the next time, I was paranoid. For nine, well, eight, eight months, I was paranoid. And Sarah dealt with cramping. She dealt with bleeding. She went on this one uh, business trip uh, for dental assistance out in British Columbia. She, and she called me. She was like, I'm cramping and bleeding. And she's like 12-hour drive, four-hour flight away. And I'm just like, okay, God, I can't do anything. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed. And she had quite a few bouts of cramping and bleeding. And every time this happened, I would remind myself that God sent an angel to me to tell me that Sarah was pregnant. And I said, there's no way he's going to let us lose this baby because he's watching over it. He wouldn't do all this just to be like, oh, sorry, this one isn't going to make it either. And sure enough, Seth was born eight months later in October, October 19th, the last nice day of the year in Calgary, Alberta. It was, we went into the hospital. It was like 50 degrees, which for there is nice <laughs> in October. And, the night, and then Seth was born in the middle of the day. The next night came and it snowed like two feet. And I looked outside. I was like, oh, man. But Seth was born and he was healthy as a horse and also about the size of a horse. Uh, he was 10 pounds when he was born. All natural, too. Four hours, dude slid right out. Which is impressive, so. Um, We tried to put him in newborn clothes. We have this funny picture. I should have included it. But we tried to put him in newborn clothes. And he was so big, it didn't sit right on him. And so he's like glaring at us as we take this picture. Because we put him in these newborn clothes. And I'm like, those aren't going to fit. And Sarah's like, they'll fit. They're newborn. We're first-time parents. We have no idea. We put them on. They're sitting there like hanging off his shoulder. And he's just looking at us like this. (laughs) I'm like, hold on, let me take a picture. (laughs) In the picture, he's just glaring with one eye open. But he was big. Uh, With this story, there's one thing I don't understand. I don't, for the life of me, I don't know what the angel wanted me to do about knowing that Sarah was pregnant at four in the morning. Uh, did he want me to wake up my wife and tell her? Because I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, angel guy, that's not going to go over well. There's one lesson I learned early in marriage. Don't wake a sleeping wife. There were no amens with that, so. Maybe it's just my wife. <laughs> One night, she's going to hate me for telling this, but one night, she was snoring, and I woke her up. I was like, honey, you're snoring. And she was like, you woke me up to tell me I was snoring? That means I was asleep. (laughs) Even if there's a fire in your house, you don't wake up your wife. You just carry her out gently and let her keep sleeping on the lawn. So I don't know why the angel couldn't have come at like 6 in the morning instead of 4. But God has his reasons. Maybe one day I'll understand it. Uh, but God still sends angels uh, with messages for his people. And that's sort of what we're looking at today with the uh, Annunciation to Mary, if you want to be all fancy terms for it. And the story starts off, if you look in your Bibles, in verse 26. Luke 1, verses 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name is Mary. And it starts off with, in the sixth month. In the sixth month of what? In the sixth month of the year? Why didn't he just say June? Well, if you actually look, this is important that he starts it off with in the sixth month, because just two verses before, 
In those days, uh, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. She didn't announce, uh, didn't announce that she was pregnant. She didn't announce she was pregnant with John because she's an old lady. She might have miscarried, so she just keeps it quiet. So Mary didn't know that her relative Elizabeth was pregnant. You know, there's no, so, there's no social media in those days. Elizabeth didn't post it on her Facebook account with a silly little birth announcement picture. Which, yeah, so we're going to go with, uh, you guys didn't, you weren't there when Seth and Natalie, when we got to do birth announcements for them. Uh, Seth, we didn't do one, but Natalie, we tried to do a cute one. Just go ahead, one slide. Come on, slides. There we go. This is Seth when he was six months old and we were pregnant with Natalie. That's Seth at six months old, yeah. (laughs) The dude is a horse. (laughs) He's just, he's just, people always, we told somebody he was six and they're like, no, he's not. (laughs) I was there, dude. (laughs) He's six. But that's an ultrasound of Natalie and a sign with Big Brother and that's me wearing the same shirt. (laughs) Did I plan that? Yes. Do I have more than one shirt in my closet? Also yes. Um, But that's Seth at six months old. Very happy that he's a big brother. Now, this was, this was us just doing something spur of the moment. So, there's Seth. He's happy. He's a big brother. He has no idea what that means. Uh, this was the one for uh, Ben. Uh, Seth on the left, Natalie in the middle. And then one more controller saying, Player 3 joining March 2017. Guess who came up with that? <laughs> this guy. I look at that picture and I'm like, Natalie's hands are, and Seth's hands are so small. They're like babies. This was two years ago. And yeah, they're pretty tiny. Uh, but these are our, our birth announcements for our children. Uh, but six months later, back to the Bible, Gabriel visits Mary. And God has more birth announcements to make. And this one is more important than the last. Uh, and since Jesus actually comes second here, uh, he was younger than John the Baptist. I don't know if you realize that, but they were related. And John was about six months older than Jesus which as an adult doesn't matter. You tell somebody, oh, I'm six months older than you. As an adult, you're like, yeah, whatever. As kids, it's a big deal. But adults, we don't care. Uh, But the first thing Gabriel says to Mary in verse 28 is he says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary has found favor with God. What does that mean, that she's got favor with God? When someone is given God's favor, what does that person get? And we actually talked about that at the end of last year. If you remember, the last sermon of 2017 was I wanted or expected 2018 to be a year of favor. And in that sermon I said, in a nutshell, favor with God can be described in one phrase. It means, basically, God likes you. In its simplest essence, favor with God is his positive disposition towards you. In Isaiah 62, it's put this way. Isaiah 62, verse 4. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. You shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land is made for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. God says, my delight is in you. And God's favor isn't just his positive inclination towards you. In fact, it goes beyond that. Favor manifests itself in great blessings and freedom. And for Mary, God's favor is giving her the privilege of carrying the Messiah. Carrying the Christ, giving birth to him. That's a pretty big deal. 
And at this point in the history of the Bible, we're just starting the New Testament. They don't even know we're starting the New Testament. We don't know. Mary had no idea we're moving from Old Testament to New Testament. But at this time, the biggest blessing someone could have is giving birth to the Messiah. So Gabriel is telling Mary, you have no idea the blessings that God is giving you. And naturally, Mary misses completely what's going on. Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Uh, Mary at this point is probably a teenager. And she has no idea what God's up to. Of course this is going to throw her for a loop. Wouldn't you be in the same way as a teenager? If an angel appeared to you as a teenager and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, you'd have been like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Sounds nice, but... Uh, Gabriel then backs up and starts to explain it to her. Verse 30. He said, Don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. And I like that he starts off with telling her not to worry. Don't worry. It's good news. This is not a judgment. This is not bad news. This is all good stuff. And he goes on to explain in verses 31 to 33. He says, Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom they will have no, there will be no end. And he actually tells her what to name the baby. And he says, call him Jesus, but this is actually uh, the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is, we would render as Joshua today. She says, uh, the angel says to Mary, I'm sorry, I'm being distracted because I hear Ben crying, going, Mama, Mama, Mama. Like, Buddy, grow up. <laughs> You're almost two. But she says, uh, he says to Mary, name him Jesus. Name him after the man who led the nation of Israel into the promised land. Name him Joshua. This is a curiosity of English. In other languages, Jesus' name is Josh. It's whatever the name for Joshua is. We have it as Jesus, as something special. But every person you know named Joshua is named basically the same name Jesus has. It means Yahweh saves. We carried over more of the Greek form of Jesus' name, which is Jesus, which is the form of the name Joshua. Side note, uh, do you know anybody named James? You know the book in the Bible named James? There's actually no book in the Bible named James. The book of the Bible named James is actually Jacob. But in, I know. Mind blown, right? I can get you my Greek Bible, and it says Jacob. The name of the book of James is actually Jacob. Every instance you see in the Bible of James is actually Jacob because our English Bible was translated by King James, and he wanted his name in the Bible. So he said, hey, guess what? We're going to put James instead of Jacob. They take certain... Everybody here is just mine. You're not going to listen to anything else I say. You're going to just Google that. This doesn't make any sense. That's, that's um, more of a... Jacob is the Greek. James is more of the Latin form. But it should be Jacob. So we have James and Jacob, same name. The name Diego is also from the same root. So San Diego is actually St. James or St. Jacob, if we're going with the more Hebrew names. I've lost everybody here now. That's all you're going to be thinking of is James and Jacob the whole rest of this time. You're going to be like, no, no, that's not right. Yeah, good old King James, 1611. Uh, but 
Let me break this down to you. Uh, I like what Gabriel does here. Because he's breaking this down for Mary in the simplest terms possible. Gabriel says to Mary, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be a boy. I want you to name him Jesus or Joshua. And this boy will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And his kingdom will have no end. Right? Mary doesn't know all the Old Testament prophecies. She doesn't know Isaiah 52 or Isaiah 61. She she doesn't know Hosea 11.1 or Genesis 3.15. She has no idea about any of the Old Testament prophecies. She might have heard them at synagogue a couple times, but she doesn't know or have them memorized. She's just a kid, basically. She's a teenage girl. So he says, I'm going to break this down to you in its basic terms. He's going to be God's son. He's going to be part of the Davidic kingship, and he's going to reign forever. That's the basic role of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to be an eternal king that is God's son. And as any teenager would, after this excellent theological explanation of what the Messiah is going to do, Mary, as any teenager would, makes it about sex. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And she actually doesn't say, I'm a virgin. What she says in the Greek is, I do not know a man. How will this be since I do not know a man? No, being a euphemism for, I am not having sex with anyone. (laughs) How can I have a baby if I've not had sex with anyone? Her parents gave her the talk. They, they make fun, if you, look, if you look at secular scholars, they make fun of people in the Bible. They're like, well, she just didn't know how it happened. She knows how this works. Her parents explained it to her. They, the cattle illustration, it fits, yes. Animals, you pay attention. She says, basically, to the angel, she says, I haven't had sex with Joseph yet, or anybody, <laughs> I haven't had sex with any man, and it takes a man and a woman to make a baby. So how can I have a baby if I hadn't had sex with any man yet? And the angel explains this to Mary in one verse of the Bible. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And this verse is extremely important for us in our understanding of Jesus. Because it teaches the doctrine of the virgin birth, which is huge. And we often think the virgin birth is special because it created a baby without sex. Right? This is special. But babies are born all around the world daily without sex. For the record, there are about 60,000 babies born in the U.S. every year without sex. In vitro fertilization creates babies without parents having sex because they take the sperm and they take the egg, they fertilize them, they stick them in the baby. No sex involved. Right? And the virgin birth is special not because of a lack of sex because that happens all the time. Oh yeah, we we can do that. We can duplicate this. You could, in theory, duplicate this. A woman who has never had sex, you could take one of her eggs out, take a sperm from a man, and have her have a baby without that. You could duplicate this if you were really weird and wanted to. <laughs> the, virgin ver- the virgin birth is special, not because of a lack of sex, but rather because of a lack of human parents. Even with in vitro fertilization and everything in that vein, there are two human parents involved. 
you have an egg from one lady and a sperm from a dude. We all know this is how babies are made. You guys are glossing over at me. Okay, we're just clear. That's how babies are made. So we say virgin birth, but what we actually mean is the virgin conception. Because there have been two times in history that people were created without two human parents. You're spoiling my sermon, Boyd. Uh, You're fine. The first time a human was made without human parents was Adam. Remember? God made Adam special. Fully formed, bam. He didn't create him as like a baby laying on the ground and think, boy, I hope somebody comes around and take care of this. You know, like Jungle Book. Maybe the, maybe the tigers will do it or something. Wait, the tiger's the bad guy. A bear. I don't know. God created Adam and Eve sinless and gave them the opportunity to obey him. Right? That's what it says in Genesis. However God did it, he made them without human parents, gave them the opportunity to follow God. Adam and Eve both failed to obey God and doomed the human race as a result. He basically said, I'm not going to follow God, and instead I want to do things my own way. I'm going to listen to this talking snake, which, I mean, talking snakes you want to stay away from. God saw what Adam and Eve did. God saw... (laughs) Hi, Natalie. Go to the bathroom, please. God saw what Adam and Eve did and he knew he would have to make a second Adam in order to redeem the human race. He said, this first Adam did not do what I wanted. I wanted Adam to just follow me. Just real simple. Do what I tell you to do, Adam. We'll have no problems. And Adam went, that's nice. I think I'm going to do the one thing you told me not to do. And God just goes, okay, we're going to have to make a new batch. God would have to make a second Adam to redeem the human race, but he couldn't be just human because humans will fall, no doubt. Every single one of us, if you were Eve, ladies, or if we were Adam, dudes, we'd have done the same thing. You can't be like, well, I would have listened. God says we all would have done the same thing. Put any of us in that situation, sooner or later, we're going to walk to that one tree and go, yeah, I don't know. And God knew if you wanted something done right, you have to do it yourself. So he decided to become a human and live just like he wanted us to. So this is the second time in human history that a human is made without two human parents. Now this is not like, and I've had arguments with many atheists and whateverists in my lifetime, this is not like Hercules or Achilles, where a lady has sex with God and then has a baby. Those are a half-human, half-God demigod that aren't truly God or truly human, and they're a weird half-breed, and also they're mythological, so we don't believe in them. Just as a side note, just in case we're curious. Jesus is different. Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. Jesus had a human mother, Mary, which shows us that he is truly human. However, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which shows us that he is truly God. And this enables us to relate to, this enables him to relate to us as humans. He can live like us. He can be like us. He is one of us. But at the same point in time, he is also truly God, which allows him to save us and to redeem us. He is the zenith, the ultimate point, the pinnacle of God's work in the world. He is God in human form. And this is what Gabriel is telling Mary 
in verse 35. Very succinctly, he is saying that God, the second person in the Trinity, is manifesting himself in human form, but he's doing it just like everybody else, starting as an embryo. Jesus started as one cell inside of Mary that duplicated and duplicated and then did the weird little make a thing and then form over on itself and then eyes and all that stuff. It's really cool how babies are formed inside their moms. But this doctrine of Christianity, the virgin birth, is really a central pillar of what we believe. The virgin birth touches every single other area of our theology. It touches our doctrine of the Trinity. It touches our salvation. It touches the church and our humanity. The virgin birth is important because it tells us so much about Jesus. And since Jesus is the central person of our faith, Jesus is the central pillar of our faith, our understanding of him influences every single other thing we believe. I hope this slide shows up right. This is a quote from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. No people has ever risen above its religion, and no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. This is like the first page in this book, which I encourage you all to read because it's really good. If Jesus is our God, then what we think of him will influence what we think of ourselves, what we think of each other, what we think of the world, what we owe each other. So if we think of Jesus as merely a human, as merely a nice teacher, then all his teachings need our our approval. Then we just look at his teaching and go, yeah, okay, he's a wise guy, perfect, we like it. We give credence to his teaching and we ignore his miracles, which were probably, you know, made up later. Or if we think of Jesus as some kind of superhuman or superman-like figure, then we marvel at him and we look at him and we think, I could never be like that. Jesus, he was just, he was, uh, he was just God in human form. He wasn't like us in any way. He was just, he was, he's like Superman. We say, I could never be like that. He was some superhuman type of being. Not like me at all. And both of these pictures of God are insufficient or wrong to say Jesus was like Superman. Because he wasn't. He was like us. And both of these pictures of Jesus will lead us astray from the true Jesus who loves us. Because the enemy, Satan, loves to come along and get us to believe anything but the truth. He will get us to believe an insufficient or a wrong picture of Jesus, which will infect every single other aspect of our faith. And his lies will draw us into sin one way or another. If you do not believe correctly about Jesus, it will draw you into sin. And it's simply because we don't understand who Jesus is. Because if the foundation is wrong, if our house is built on Jesus, and the foundation is wrong, the whole rest of the building will be. And when we do finally fix our beliefs, if we have a wrong picture of who Jesus is, when we finally change to a right picture, you've got to change the whole rest of the house. This wall's out of line. The roof's not right now. We change the foundation. Everything needs to be changed. And let me tell you, people don't like change. People don't like changing, especially their minds. No person in here is like, man, I love changing my mind. I love shedding old beliefs that I had and getting new ones. Everybody, thank you for shaking your head, Wagner. I appreciate that. You guys, (laughs) nobody loves changing their minds. It is best 
to get a proper understanding of Jesus at the beginning. As young as you can, get the right picture of Jesus. Those kids back there need the best picture of Jesus that we can give them. So that when they get older, they don't say, oh, I never knew Jesus was like that. I wish I'd have known 20, 30, 50 years ago. So we should get a proper understanding of who Jesus was as soon as we can, or as soon as possible. Like now. You know, just as an idea. The virgin birth shows us that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. And Jesus had to be human. It was necessary for Jesus to be born of Mary and be a human. Because he developed just like we did. He had to learn how to talk, how to walk, how to use the bathroom. He had the same physical limitations we did. He got tired when he exercised. He got hungry when he didn't eat. And most importantly, Jesus was tempted in every area just like we are. Do not think that Jesus did not experience temptation. He was human. He experienced it. He was tempted to tell a little lie to get out of an argument. You know, maybe he's not getting along with Mary or one of his brothers. Maybe there's somebody at school that's frustrating him. And he was tempted to tell a lie to get out of maybe an uncomfortable situation. Jesus was tempted to fulfill his sexual desires in improper ways. Or he was tempted to give vent to his rage when someone made him mad. You ever done that? Anybody here? Just just me? Somebody makes you mad and you're just like, ah, and the person's like, whoa, where did all that come from? And you're like, well, <laughs> let me show you all this baggage I have that's making me angry. <laughs> We don't do that. We just get mad and then walk away and think, man, I shouldn't have done that. Or we hold on to our sense of, oh, well, they deserved it. No, they didn't. You're just having a bad day. <laughs> but Jesus, and that's, I, I appreciate that, that Jesus was able to be so frustrated. Like, think about how frustrated he get got at his disciples. He's misunderstood by his disciples. He's misunderstood by his religious leaders. He's misunderstood by his family, yet he never chewed anybody out. Never flipped anybody off, never cussed. And I'm like, that's, yeah, okay, don't turn stones into bread. I got that one. But don't cuss and don't scream and don't yell at people. That's impressive. He only got as mad as, a, as he deserved for each person who, with whom he was frustrated. That guy is on point. Jesus, in his human strength alone, resisted all temptation. Jesus was completely human, yet always perfectly obeyed God. That's awesome. He showed us the type of life that he wants us to live. He is our example. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to live just like he did. But also, with Jesus, the fact that he had to be human, he also had to be divine. Those were side by side. Which means my next slide is going to be super... Becca, could you look at my next slide? A couple slides, because they're going to be all like that too. And fix them, please. Uh, Jesus had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. His mission on earth was to, as Gabriel said, be an eternal king. Jesus was to be God's representative on earth for all people. What human would have the gall to say, yeah, I'll be God's representative, sign me up for that. No one would do that. We're all, we all know that we're imperfect. God only can be his representative. Only God could fulfill that role. So Jesus himself was God in the flesh, God with us. And if he's not 100% God, he can't be God's representative. 
He can't be an eternal king. He has to be God and he has to be man both completely. And to conclude, I want to talk about Jesus some more. We fixed fixed those slides back, guy? Okay, thank you. I want to talk about Jesus in two ways. And the slides would really help now, but I keep making mistakes with them. Very good. First, I want to talk about Jesus and our perception of who he is. On the one hand, every single person in here has a perception of what Jesus is like. And it's unique to you. It may be similar to someone else's, but every single person here has a picture of what Jesus is like and an understanding of what he's like and what we think about when we think about Jesus. We have our own ideas and perceptions about him. And then with that, we have Jesus in all capitals, who he actually is. Are you able to make that distinction with me? The difference between what you think Jesus is like and then what he actually is like. We can't change the way Jesus in all capitals. We can't change the way he is. He's the same no matter what. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. Jesus is awesome. He's magnificent and wonderful, far beyond our wildest dreams. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. He's the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity. I can keep going because there's a ton of stuff to describe him in the Bible. But that is all unchangeable. On the right, Jesus, as he actually is, is unchangeable. But while we can't change that, we can change the Jesus on the left, our perception of him. Because let me tell you, I hope this is where it lines up. Close enough. They're supposed to be below this yellow dotted line, the word self. Each of us is a filter through which we understand Jesus. I'm going to come over here and make everybody who's watching on the video mad. This is ourselves, and this influences how we understand. I like having the slides in here. I feel like I'm a teacher. This is ourself, and this influences how we understand Jesus. Our past, our relationships, everything about us influences how we understand Jesus. And some of us, I'd say most of us, we get, we get some information about Jesus right. We get most of it right. But we don't have it all right. We don't understand Jesus as he actually is completely. And if you think your Jesus, your perception is completely accurate with as he actually is, then we need to have a different conversation. Um, because your finite mind can't grasp the, in, you know, the eternal, infinite nature of the second person of the Trinity. But it's passages like this in the Gospels that help us get a little closer to properly understanding Jesus in all caps and his true nature. Because if you look in this story, you have an unwed teenage mother, engaged but not married, with no social status, no money, is not royalty, not upper class, not anything. She's not even American. (laughs) But yet, she is carrying the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, inside her body. You should read this because we're so, we're so used to it. We hear it since we're little kids. Mary was a virgin and she carried Jesus. And we're like, okay, sure. I don't know what that means, but whatever. And then we get a little older and we're like, oh, okay, I understand. But we don't really get it. That she is, all of us looking at her would be like, she's a kid. Or for some of you, she is my peer, yet she is carrying the Messiah. 
She didn't have a job. She's not married and she's pregnant. Whoa, God, you need to chill out there. Because Jesus may have had angels announce his conception, angels announce his birth. He may have been visited by shepherds and wise men and angels, but he was still, at the end of it, just a guy. A normal human being like us. Yes, he was the Son of God. Yes, he was the Word made flesh. But he was just like us. He went to school as a kid. He went to work as a grown-up. He had family problems and family arguments. He was called names, maybe picked on. He went through everyday normal life. For 30 years before he started his ministry, you would not have seen anything special about him. He'd have just been another guy sitting in church. He was a person just like us. And our spiritual health requires us to grasp that significance. Because if Jesus was not like us in our humanity, what good is his example? If Jesus isn't a human just like us, what good is his example? To everything he did, we could just say, well, you were God. You did miracles? Well, you were God. You forgave those who crucified you? Well, you were God. You gave sight to the blind? Well, you were God. Of course you could. But the Bible does not paint Jesus in that way. He was not special because he was God. He was special because he was ordinary. How can someone who is ordinary be special? It shows that God is willing to completely immerse himself in life just like us. God got no special treatment. No get-out-of-jail-free cards. Nothing. God, who made heaven and earth, is willing to come to our world and be just like us. God can accommodate himself to our existence. I have trouble, when I come here during the week, accommodating myself to the standards of kids' kingdom. Like, there's little kids back there, and I have to be nice to them, and I have to get down on their level, and it's just, it's like... Let me make sure I'm not... I have to be nice to them? I have to use little words? It's like, this is too much. (laughs) I have trouble accommodating myself to my fellow humans who are just a little bit younger than I am. Yet here, God becomes human and becomes just like us, and it doesn't bother him to be just a normal guy. In Jesus' complete humanity, we see the lengths God will go to to save us. God is willing to be made into basically a peasant to live completely obedient to God, misunderstood by everybody around him, and give his life for everybody. He's willing to do that for us. And let me tell you, it doesn't stop there. He doesn't pursue us once and then stop. God is still making the effort to meet us at our level today. God is willing to do what it takes to meet you at your level. Wherever you are in your walk with God, God is willing to meet you there. Whether you're running after him, whether you feel like you're going slow, whether you feel like you've kind of given up, God is willing to meet you wherever you are. Because he is with each of us, every single one of us, all the time. God spends his time with us. Longing to be with us. Longing to interact with us. Revelation puts it this way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
He knocks on the door of our hearts and says, I want a relationship with you. He knocked on the door once in his arrival as a baby in Bethlehem, and he is still knocking at the door of our hearts each and every day. He's not put off when we ignore him or when we turn away. He just keeps loving us, longing for us, and knocking at the door of our hearts. It doesn't phase him to come to earth like a baby or to continually knock on the door of our hearts. If God's willingness to do whatever it takes to deepen his relationship with us isn't part of your picture of Jesus, if you don't see Jesus as willing to do whatever it takes for you, for your friends, for your family, then you have an insufficient picture of Jesus. He is not sitting up on a throne in heaven, looking down, waiting for you to come to him, waiting for you to crawl back. He's right there saying, come on, I'm right here and I'm waiting for you. The slightest inclination of turning towards him, he's happy over. God doesn't want to be a part of our lives. He wants to be the central part of our lives. As St. Augustine wrote in his confessions, again on the first page, I'm a first page guy because I don't get much farther in the book. (laughs) As St. Augustine wrote in his confessions, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no rest until they find rest in you. So this morning, God is calling out to us. Do you see it? Do you see in your own life how God is drawing you near to him, to your, drawing you near to him? I hope as you think about it, you can see how he is doing that. And let me tell you, he will keep doing that. He won't stop. Until you're dead, he won't stop. Every single moment of your life, life he will chase after you. How are you responding to it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your presence here this morning. I thank you that I can sense you working in the hearts of people. And I ask that for everyone here who's feeling like Man, God's chasing after me. God is pursuing me. I ask that you would help them to respond positively. And Lord, for me and my own life, I thank you for never giving up on me, for continuing to pursue me even when I ignore you, even when I am distracted. God, you are good. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do in the future. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.